All right, guys, welcome back to the show. And on the show with me today, I've got Christopher Shelton out of Maryland. He is a traditional bow hunter, and I had a great time talking with him about uh, traditional bow hunting, about hunting out of a saddle, getting some tips from him on what I need to look at in pursuing saddle systems or purchasing my own. And so I think I'm going to get one here in the next week or so because I need to be practicing like getting up in a tree getting comfortable with it, having all my settings and length right on the ropes. That way I can hunt comfortably this fall. And so I'll be doing probably a podcast just about that, what the system looks like and how I've got it all organized. But I'm getting pumped for all of the seasons to kick off because we're only 13 days away from frog gigging season. I actually just got a group text message from a lot of the buddies that I go frog gigging with and do all my hunting with. And they were asking what the plan is, um, if everybody's going to be showing up for it, who's who's going to come, what ponds we have access to, and all of that stuff. So I'm getting pumped. It's going to go frog gigging. Then at the end of July, I head up to Alaska for another hunt, um, a hunting and fishing trip, actually. And then when I get back, it's going to be dove season, early teal, waterfowl, and archery. It's all going to start kicking off really quick after that. So I'm getting ready. I need to do some more shooting, get my bow out, and do some more practice with that, but I can't wait. So we're going to jump into this episode because it was a long episode, although it could have been even longer. I had a great time talking with Chris, so here we go. Like, he was doing things that were just badass. That was one of the coolest moments of my life. I was really scared, but knowing that Dan had the gun, I did have the rifle, like, we would be okay. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And on the show with me today, I'm on a Zoom call with Christopher Shelton. Um, he's out of Maryland. He's big into fly fishing and trad bow hunting. Um, and so we're going to chat with him about the things that he's passionate about. And yeah, I'm really excited because I've got so many questions. These are areas that I want to pursue, but I haven't dove into yet. And so I'm definitely looking forward to this conversation. But welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me, Dan. It's, it's a pleasure. Yeah. Um, so why don't you start off by just giving the listeners a background as well as I'm going to find out some of this stuff for the first time, because all we've done is email up until this point. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of weird how this whole new age technology kind of works, how you can kind of connect with people and, and not actually know them super well. <laughs> so, yeah, I've been um, I've been hunting and fishing for a long time. My father is in the outdoors and he introduced all of us. I have a brother and sister. We started at a young age, uh, definitely super young fishing. And then he waited till we got like middle school age to introduce us to hunting. He, um, Mar Maryland's kind of weird. It's mostly flat, but the Western part of the state where dad prefers to hunt is pretty rugged. It's okay. the Appalachian mountains and it's, it's pretty hardcore, especially during deer season when it gets super cold. So he kept that in mind when he started to introduce us into this and, um, I think I took my first year with a rifle at like 14. I took my first year with a uh, recurve at 15 and it's been nonstop since then. It's kind of been an illness. We moved farther West and we've been able to hunt a whole lot more since then. That's cool. And so, um, what are you primarily hunting out there? Is it whitetail, seek a deer, um, something that I don't know exists out there? Yeah. So, um, for most of my life, it's been strictly whitetails. 
um, Maryland has only been hunting black bears for maybe, I think I actually got to hunt the second year or the third year and it was 2012. So it hasn't been forever, but I've been able to hunt black bears probably uh, two times. And one says just like uh, tag along with a buddy who drew a tag because it's a lottery system for black bears. And then last year was actually my first time ever hunting sick of deer. They're pretty centralized on the, the eastern shore across the Chesapeake Bay. Okay. Um, mostly Dorchester County, but I actually went quite a bit farther south. Um, Assateague Island is a, is a federal piece of land, but it's still connected to Maryland. Um, Assateague Island actually has land in, with Maryland and Virginia, but it's actually really cool. Um, it's all ocean, basically. It's like on, you're on the beach. You camp on the beach. They have wild horses and they also have sick of deer and whitetails. So That's it's pretty awesome. weird. Yeah, it was, it was bizarre. And it was really weird for me coming from the mountains, but oh, I yeah. found a whole bunch of sick of deer, but getting within bow range is, <laughs> it's another task. Well, <laughs> so I had one within with, bow range, but no, with, no shots fired. With trad gear. I mean, what, what's your effective range on that? I know like, obviously recurves there's guys out there shooting like 300 yards they're not shooting like at animals at that distance right what what's your effective range on a recurve bow yeah fair question i shoot um pretty regularly i i kind of escalate farther along when it gets closer to the season our season opens in september um i practice from like 10 to 40 yards regularly okay but on a living animal i try to keep it realistically under 30 and i would prefer it much closer yeah um specifically with sick deer they're quite a bit smaller than whitetails um i think uh, on the island they actually make you check in in person which maryland's gone all digital except since it's federally managed the seasons are different and they actually make you bring the animal whole to a check-in station and have it weighed and everything like that and, and registered oh damn. so it's listed there when you go to sign in because you have to sign in before and after you come in and out and the check-in list is there too and i think most of those uh weights were in the 40 to 70 pound range for the whole animal so they're quite small a lot smaller yeah way smaller um so with a smaller target like that i wanted them pretty close um the one the one stag that came in on me when i was sitting on the ground super close came in way closer than i expected so when I tried to get a bow up and draw on him, he was maybe 10 steps away and it, he busted me quick. So it was, it was pretty cool. They make, they make sounds like elk and they wallow and chase and they bounce like mule deer. It's bizarre. It's a bizarre critter. That's so wild. Cause like you see small deer. I mean, you feel, I feel like the smaller the animal, the quieter it's going to be. Right. But like you see a white tail and the butt grunting isn't anything spectacular. Obviously, it gets your adrenaline pumping when you're out in the woods during oh, a yeah. rut. But something like that to make a elk bugle sound, and then it's even weirder. It's more like a more like a whine. If you haven't heard it before, I definitely recommend going I mean, on YouTube I feel and like, checking it out. I feel like I've heard it. I think there was a meat eater episode. There was about, about them, and I remember hearing it on there, and I was like, "Man, that's so odd." But I went on a moose hunt with a buddy of mine out in Colorado. And I remember he started calling when we were on a scouting trip and it was like middle of July and he starts calling to these moose and all the noise was, was 
Oh, oh. And I was like, hold on, you mean to tell me these gigantic, like Clydesdale sized animals, <laughs> that's their noise that they make to mate? And he's like, yeah, that's basically it. That's what the bull does when he gets like when the rut's going on. So uh, they're just, they're so big, they have to save energy. They don't have yeah. all that bugle and energy in them. <laughs> yeah, for real. And then especially like in the, in the winter, they, I didn't know this, but the dewlap, I think is what it's called or the waddle, or I think there's a bunch of different yeah. names for it. Basically that like dangly thing under their throat will yeah. actually freeze off. And so when you shoot a mature bull that still has that intact, it's kind of rare. Yeah. My uncles are, well, my great uncles were Canadian. They passed since. So they've told me that before that it falls off. Yeah. My so one weird. uncle lived in, in the Yukon and he was like, yeah, they almost never have that thing unless it's early. Yeah. I mean, and I'm sure up there, the temperature extremes are a lot lower than Colorado, but (laughs) yeah, definitely. Well, that's cool. Um, so you've, have you, have you had success, uh, seek a deer hunting? No, this this was my first, my first attempt. Um, I have a buddy that also shoots a trad bow and he's had quite a bit and that's really the driving factor that made me go after them. Um, he gave me a whole hind quarter, which fit into a two gallon freezer bag, <laughs> but it was by far the best meat I've ever had. It was Dang. truly fantastic. Um, I think in that meat eater episode, they reference it as like elk veal. And I think that's pretty accurate. It's like butter. Oh, it was really man. good. Well, shoot, maybe I'll be making a trip out to Maryland. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds awesome. Yeah. Come along, man. It's it. There's a lot of public land. Most of their habitat is federally managed. There's a huge uh, refuge in Dorchester, but that whole island is federally managed for the most part too. That's but cool. It's, uh, there's no, there's pretty liberal limits for for both areas. Yeah, um, I'm curious about your trad bow setup because I know there's some trad trad bow guys that are like diehard basically like you make your own arrows you don't use a sight like nothing modern i guess you would say on it it's all traditional where do you fall in the scale of you know 100 percent like handmade versus you can still have all the upgrades on it but it's just not a compound bow yeah so i fall somewhere in the middle for sure um i i've never really hunted with like a soft bow it's always a, a recurve or a longbow with a laminated uh, limbs. So okay. it's, a, it's, it's still more modern. That being said, um, the last several seasons, I was hunting with an actual uh, bear recurve. It's a bear grizzly. It's uh, green and brown. And it's been like my dream bow, so to speak, growing up. So I had to get one and I had to hunt with it. And I did for, for several seasons. And it's, it's, I think it's manufactured date was 1972. So it's, it's getting up there in age and it, I didn't realize how slow it was until I just got a new, um, it's a takedown longbow hybrid and it's quite a bit faster and it's in the same weight range, but I don't, I don't get super strict with it. Um, I did, uh, I was super determined to hunt with wood arrows. Yep. So I was toting around um, some some spruce arrows from Sherwood shafts for several seasons, and I built them from from bare shaft material. Okay. And I I do build arrows all the time, but anymore, um, 
carbon's just so much easier to deal with i mean my carbon looks like wood they're they're kind of um you know most most traditional carbon arrows have a like a wood finish on to make you feel like you're not cheating so much but they're just they're a lot easier to deal with and i have modern string materials and i carry around several thousand dollars of the latest and greatest in camera technology so it's kind of like an oxymoron so to speak (laughs) that's awesome i have a smartwatch and a smartphone so and there's I kind of get the the draw to like want to build a bow out of a piece of wood you get out of the woods, but like you're still driving a truck there and you're yep. still carrying a smartphone. So it's like, I get it. And I don't like, I use cell cameras and it's like, it's, I just like the simplicity of it. Yep. I started with a compound. Actually dad's old compound was a bear polar. It has wooden limbs and a cast aluminum riser but it still has wheels and let off and all that good stuff. But it was just, first of all, I got bored when I was in high school, I would started shooting it in the beginning of summer and I expected it to take all summer to become proficient. And after like week three, I was shooting cherry tomatoes at 25 yards. And I'm like, <laughs> all right, like I can step back farther, but I'm not going to shoot that much farther back, even with a compound. So yeah. what am I going to do for the rest of the summer? And then also for like a school reading list we had to read hatchet by gary paulson Mm -hmm. and that kind of like ignited something that on top of like i'm gonna give away a little bit of my dorkiness but like lord of the rings was coming out of that time period too and like legolas with the bow was pretty cool so i'm like all right that's where we need to get there somehow yeah and i just started whittling sticks and dad got tired of scrap everywhere and on the deck and he's like here's a bow yeah <laughs> so he went and like bought me like a little cheap 25 pound fiberglass bow and that kind of satisfied my need for a little while and then one of my grandmother's friends um they were cleaning out like their attic and they had a old wooden recurve and that's where it really like started to catapult from there that's cool so ever ever since then um I think one time I hunted with the compound and I forgot the release in the truck and we hunt pretty deep. So that's a big deal. Like I wasn't going to have a release that whole trip. And I'm like, no, this isn't, this isn't it. (laughs) I'm like, I need something simpler. Like I can shoot bare fingers if I need to. There's no sights to knock, especially in the mountains when you can fall and knock off both sights pretty regularly. Oh yeah. So I just like it. I like the the weapon simple. Plus yeah, that, they're they're nice to look at in the woods. <laughs> they're that's, beautiful. That's cool. Um I remember, I mean when I grew up my dad had a bow and it was probably now it would be probably 6 years old the bow would be and it was like it had to have been one of the first generation co- compound bows that they made. Um but I couldn't draw it back at all. The let off was hardly anything and my parents weren't going to buy me a bow yet and I was like man, I really want a bow. And so my brother and I, we took PVC and we drilled through both ends of it. And then we bent it and we just took like regular rope. I mean, that back then we would use to tie things down on top of our van before a road trip. Like we took that and tied it in between with it bent. And then (laughs) my dad got so mad at us because we would go and steal all of his arrows back then. I mean, all the arrows were different diameter, different length, different fletching. Um, 
but we just go take his arrows and we, we started shooting with that. We'd shoot them into trees. We'd shoot them, see how far across our yard and the neighbor's yard, we could shoot it. And there was something cool about like, Hey, I made this. I didn't go buy it at the store. Um, but now, I mean, I shoot a compound bow. I think probably here in the next few years, I'll transition to a recurve bow. Um, I've always had that interest, like to go more and more primitive. And some people think- are like, Oh, it's not like there's, there's guys out there hunting with spears and they're like, Oh, that's not ethical. There's guys that hunt with blow guns. But I'm like, if you're proficient with a weapon to the point where you're confident when you let an arrow fly, a dart fly, the spear out of your hand, even a bullet leave the barrel of the gun. If you're confident the animal is going to go down, like I don't see any reason why you can't hunt with a, a weapon that you're that confident with. Yeah, I think it's natural to want to go a little bit more primitive, like kind of step down or step step over into different categories. Um, I mean, even I, I hunt with everything, so I'm not super picky i know a lot of guys are pretty purists they want just to hunt with a bow and just to hunt with a stick bow specifically and i hunt all bow season with a stick bow i don't have a compound but then i'll gladly pick up a rifle if the freezer's empty i'm not super picky and i hunt with a flintlock which that's kind of opened up my eyes considerably because i always thought like muzzleloaders were kind of like rifles and they kind of are now like most inlines are pretty accurate out to several hundred yards yeah but a flintlock is kind of more difficult than a stick bow specifically dealing with weather it's a pain in the butt and it kind of like it kind of gave me a lot more respect for how this country was founded i'm like i cannot believe they used to deal with this on the regular back in the day it's not only that when people were shooting back at you like having to load that oh yeah I couldn't imagine. I just, I couldn't imagine having to rely with a flintlock on my life. It would just, it would drive me bananas. Oh yeah. I would definitely be shooting a bow at people because it just, <laughs> any little bit of moisture just shuts you down. You might as well just use it as a bat at that point. It, yeah, for real. <laughs> and at that, yeah, a bat. And then, you, I mean, I feel like that's why they all had bayonets. I mean, every they must, they must have, had yeah. bayonets because they probably realized the, uh, efficiency of them was so low you got to have a sword at the end yeah Yeah, i think i I mean i think even with even as far as uh tree stand hunting like i've never had a blind that i've hunted out like a tower blind that i've hunted out of um i've always been in a tree stand or i've sat on the ground i remember uh when i was probably around the same time i made that pvc bow um i went out in the garage with a saw and a drill and I made my own tree stand. It was my first one that I had ever had. And I just took, uh, I basically made two L's with pieces of two by four. And then I screwed a piece of plywood on top for the back and then on the seat. And then I took that out there and I ratchet strapped it to a tree with a six <laughs> foot extension ladder leaning up to it. And I mean, I hunted out of that for probably two or three seasons when I was a kid because we just didn't we never bought tree stands back then um yeah, i have a buddy that he did the same but he didn't actually have any wood he just literally had a 12 foot extension ladder no it was it was like an a-frame ladder and he just leaned it up against a tree and sat on the top of it yeah I'm like dude you're crazy <laughs> well i think i think i started out by trying it with my dad's he had an old boat seat he just had oh. like this tiny little uh v bottom like 12 maybe 14 foot boat 
And uh, he got new seats for it and he was so pumped about it. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to take one of these boat seats and strap it to a tree. And I tried it on, luckily I tried it like three feet off the ground on a tree in our backyard. And I didn't realize, but when there's no pedestal under it, they open all the way up. So I sat in and fortunately I didn't fall that far down, but um, (laughs) I'm really glad I didn't take that out opening day of deer season and find out. Yeah, definitely. But I just, yeah, I feel like there's a draw and I've heard other people talk about it too. Like the more you get into it and it could be the, the fact that we as humans, we want to be challenged. And so once you get good at something, you want it to be harder, you know, you don't yeah, always want it to be easy. And so, um, even with, even with tree stand hunting, like I've never hunted out of a tower blind, but it's always been tree stands. And now I want to go to the saddle system, which I checked out your Instagram. It looks like you're hunting out of a saddle now. Um, yeah, there's something about that. I, if I could, if I had trees here that I could just sit on a tree limb, I totally would, but I don't think that's, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be shooting a bow off of a tree limb. That's for sure. Yeah. It gets a little sketchy. Um, so yeah, I, I've been saddle hunting for a couple seasons now and it, they actually joke about this all the time on saddle hunter forums, but it is the game changer. Like the word game changer is a joke, but it's truly, it's, it literally has changed the way I've hunted the past couple of seasons. I've been elevated in places where in the past I would never have carted a stand back in, into Maryland. You can't leave a stand um, during season. You have to in and out every okay. time. Pennsylvania is a little bit different. If I'm not mistaken, I think you can actually set up some permanent stuff, but it has to come down uh, after season and it can't go up. I think it's like two weeks or something like that. I'm new to hunting Pennsylvania, so I'm not hundred percent, but Maryland it's 24 hours. That's it. So before the saddle, I was hunting with not so light hang-ons and regular, you know, moderately light sticks. And, um, it's just, it's a lot, it's a lot to do that every single time. Um, there, there's ways of climbing with a saddle that you can't really do with other methods too, which makes it a lot easier as well. But my entire setup weighs less than five pounds, and that's oh, including dang. the climbing method. So it's it's truly quite a bit more mobile than most other setups. And yeah. I've hunted, I have a spot that I call the wayback spot, which is, it's probably as the crow flies only two two and a three quarters of a mile back, but walking in, in uh, navigating terrain and using trail systems and stuff, it's three and a half miles back. Okay. So there's no way I'm carting, you know, even 20 pounds of hang on and sticks back in there. It's just not happening. Yeah, no way. But with, with my setup, it, it's just like walking back and hunting from the ground basically, but you get the advantage of being elevated. So it's huge. So what are you using for your climbing system? So I've heard it called several different things. I didn't come up on it. Uh, I didn't come up with it myself. It's, it's considered a no stick climbing method. Um, I've heard other people call it something else too, but I can't recall right now, but basically my tether is the top piece and I have a girth hitched rope for the bottom piece with a piece of lumber for support. Okay. And then you kind of just like you move one up, stand on it, and move the other up kind of inchworm your way up a tree um, i do have videos of this on my youtube channel nice. to kind of explain a little bit better but um so you just have a bottom rope your tether your saddle and that's why it's so lightweight 
Yeah. Uh, occasionally I'll use sticks. Um, this coming season, I'm going to, I'm going to experiment a little bit. There's a method called one sticking where you use one stick with like a two or three step eight or underneath of it. And you just do the same thing. You inch it up the tree. That's a little bit more versatile. You can use that method with limbs with a lot of limbs, a lot easier than my method. Okay. And then there's another method I'm going to try as well. It's called, actually, I haven't decided yet. It might be SRT or DRT, which is single rope tether or dual rope tether. And it's a rope climbing method. It's what most arborists and stuff will use. Okay. Yeah. I've got a couple of buddies who are arborists in just how fast, like the speed that they can get up a tree is crazy. I mean, but they're, they've got the like beanbag deal. And they swing That's exactly the what it is. And toss yeah. it. Oh, okay. So with with a hunting application, most guys will go and throw lines before season, kind of like presets. Yep. So they'll throw like a paracord loop up in the tree, so they don't have to be tossing the beanbag in the dark. So then they just attach their their main line to it and run the rope up to the tree without having to throw a bag. And that's probably what I'm going to do. That's I'm going to mostly use that for. I've got a couple of spots on private land that have a ton of limbs and really any of the inchworm climbing methods aren't really super practical. Yeah. So I want to use that method to get into those trees a little bit more easily without a lot of guys in that situation would probably use like, like preset sticks or even screen sticks, which is an option, but just for cost savings, like, on both of the private spots I have, I want to be able to bounce around quite a bit because it doesn't, nothing seems to be concrete on either of those properties. So I want to be pretty mobile still. What, what's the timeline on that? Like how long, once you have a tree picked out that you want to be in one, how, how high up are you climbing in it? Um, And then two, how long does that take uh, to get like set up with an arrow knocked ready to go? Yeah, so for my no stick method, um, it takes a lot to get used to. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fib, and it's definitely not for any everybody. But um, I'm used to it now. I've been doing it for several seasons. Um, we have a lot of tulip poplar that are naked, so a climber would work fine. But again, I'm still hiking in pretty pretty decent uh, distances, so I want to keep it lightweight and. Um, I would say I give myself an extra 20 minutes in the morning for climbing. Okay. So it doesn't, doesn't take very long and height wise, it depends on the setup. I have one spot um, on the closest private spot to me and it, the tree that I typically set up in for the lower section is down in like a valley. So I actually measured it. I have a laser measuring tool that I use for work. And I measured it from my butt down to the ground and it was 35 feet, which is quite a bit high. But from where the deer are traveling, it's probably only 20 feet off their ground, if that makes sense. So it's down in a bit of a dip. Most of the time, I'm like 20 to 25 feet in the later part of the season and probably 15 to 20 in the early part of the season when there's a lot more leaf cover. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to, yeah, I think I'm going to get, I'm going to get a saddle system and just toy around with it a bunch this summer. Um, because one thing I haven't done in the past is observation, observation sits Mm -hmm. and, uh, the bean field, basically I primarily hunt, um, private ground. It's Mm -hmm. not mine. I just have access to it through, uh, this guy that we used to know. 
um, or that we used to help out on his property, but it's a big bean field with uh, sparse trees on like one side of it. And then like an actual thick wood lot on the North end. But I want to start doing observation sits and I've heard a ton of people on like YouTube channels. If they're talking about getting started with saddle systems, uh, they're like, you have to just get up and down in trees a bunch, get comfortable with it. Know your gear. Um, I listened to one podcast called wired to hunt pod, the wired to hunt podcast. And Oh yeah. They walked through like the full saddle setup on one of the episodes and they're like, I keep, you know, my tether in the same pouch. Every time I keep this and that. And I mean, they just have it dialed in to where they said, if they're not um, worried about sound, they can get up into a tree in like 10 minutes. But if they are worried about sound, it's like 12 to 15. And I'm like, man, that's good. Uh, you know, I can climb up my screw in tree pegs like pretty quick, mm-hmm. but I don't have the ability to just move trees that afternoon if I wanted to. Right. Yeah. Screw in tree pegs are great, but they are a pain in the butt to get in and out. <laughs> so like, I always thought like, ah, oh, I can just set up this tree and if it doesn't work, I can just move it. And then I'm like, I don't know. They're, they're like what? 40 bucks for 25 feet of screwing pegs. I'll just go get some more. <laughs> it's like, yeah, exactly. it's, it's like, so it's so miserable to move them. And then you got pegs everywhere. I don't know. It, it, that's a, that's a really good way. And a lot of people do that. And they actually do like a ring of pegs around their top levels so they can use that. as like their, their platform, so to speak. But, yep. um, I was very anti-platform for a long time, but now it truly does make things easier. So yeah. I, I do use a platform now. It makes, makes world difference. Yeah. I think I'll probably go with a platform just because, I mean, if I were to change a hundred percent of how I hunt, like right away, I feel like it would be, it wouldn't be as enjoyable or as pleasant like to be out in the tree that long. And so I think I'm going to probably incorporate some, um, some saddle stuff slowly, like just do it more and more. I may even go out and like do an observation set in one of the trees that I already have a platform in and just sit in it for a while and see, see exactly like the height that I need my line to be at. I heard that makes a huge difference. Um, and then trying to figure out foot positions, spinning around, like drawing back, I may bring a target out and actually practice shooting out of that system, or I could always do it in my backyard, but, um, just like everything, it sounds like practice makes perfect and you'll get a lot more comfortable if you, if you put the time in to figure out how your system needs to be. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it's, it's actually super important to tinker with it too. Like every angle matters. And I didn't realize that when I started, I, I had, um, like a sit drag rock harness setup and, the first couple of times were super miserable, like super uncomfortable. And my tether was extremely long and I didn't realize until I tinkered with it in the backyard. I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's like, that's like way more comfortable. Yeah. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I've been miserable. For, I, I must've hunted out of it <laughs> unnecessarily like, like 40 hours miserable. And I was like, this is all it took was like, six inches off my tether or whatever and it was like Dang. a nine day difference oh man that's right yeah, you well, definitely and, definitely got a tinker for sure and you've got uh, a bunch of camera gear too and so it's You're like right. you've got to figure out how to maneuver around that what height that has to be at in order to effectively film yeah i definitely envy the guys like every time i see a, a setup 
on YouTube of a guy explaining how you have like almost 360 degree mobility around the tree. I'm like, well, I did before I put on this camera and have a <laughs> huge pack that carries all the camera gear and all that stuff too. It's just, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I started buying some of my stuff. I got a gear hanger for around my tree already. Um, and it's just like a quick buckle. Um, it's probably got eight hooks on it for all the different stuff because I do, I'm kind of a gear junkie. Like when I see something, I'm like, I don't know how I've hunted without that. And I totally can, <laughs> but all of a sudden I just get hooked and I'm like, man, I really want that. And, uh, so I started getting a bunch of different stuff and now, um, I've got a camera system as well. Uh, my problem with cam, like having a camera out there is it's not my first thought, you know, if I'm out hunting, <laughs> I'm focused on a deer or something coming through. I'm not thinking like, Oh, I need to hit record and I need to adjust my camera. I'm like, if I do that, I might mess this opportunity up. And so I actually bought a couple tactic cams recently so that mm -hmm. I could film without having, I mean, all I have to do is push one button and it'll record and wherever I'm looking, the camera will be filming. So, um, I think that'll change things up a little bit and then I'll still have my camera arm and try to, get some footage that way if i remember yeah unfortunately sometimes i'm the opposite um it depends on the season sometimes my priorities are quite a bit different yeah. like in one of my films i missed a, a really pretty big buck and i didn't get any of that on film and last year i probably flubbed an opportunity because well there's two there's two things involved i i was very busy filming him but at the same time, I was also trying to glass him and figure out if he was legal because Pennsylvania has point restrictions. Okay. So I, this spot's in Pennsylvania and he looked big enough, but I wasn't 100% sure. And he came in, it was during the rut. So he came into some scent I had out and he came in right underneath me and was only there for a split second and then turned and then um, ran down the hill and I could get a clear image of that he was in fact legal. <laughs> And I'm like, man, if I wasn't filming and messing around, maybe I would have had more time to verify and take a shot because yeah. it, it was a pretty good opportunity, but it happens. Those antler restrictions will get you. I mean, I, I haven't hunted anywhere where there's antler restrictions for whitetail, but, um, when I was out in Colorado, I hunted a unit and it did have antler restrictions. It was, I believe it was three points on one side or six inch brow tines, um, and I got on these three bulls one night and it was like right before shooting light ended. And I was only 150 yards away, but they were moving in and out of these Aspen trees, oh, and, yeah. or, sorry, in and out of these cedar trees. And I'm like watching and like one would go in, then the second one would go in behind and then the third one, and then they'd come out in a different order. And I knew two of them were like really nice bulls but the light was fading and I was like, man, it would have been the easiest drag out ever. If I, if I could have known for sure that all three of them were legal, but I just couldn't ethically take a shot with confidence knowing that they all were. And so we ended up going back in after them the next day and I ended up shooting them in the pack out after shooting them. When we found them the second day was probably like two and a half miles instead of like 150 yards. <laughs> And, uh, when you're talking about an animal that size, that's a huge difference, but yeah, that's massive. <laughs> luckily, yeah. luckily I had a ton of people actually, when I went in, um, we would have about a 45 minute four wheeler side-by-side -side ride every morning 
to get back to the spots that we really like put time in glassing. And, um, I would bundle up cause I mean, we'd get snow at night and then it could get up to 70, 75 that day. Um, and so I had like my big 1600 gram insulation, like lacrosse boots on, and we get back in there the second day going after earth. Like we wanted to go and see if we could get eyes on the animals. But by the time we actually spotted them and then had to make a move, I realized I never took my like big winter boots off. And so then I had to climb like a thousand feet elevation with those boots on. And, um, we had radios and stuff. And so once we had the bull down, we radioed back and I was like, can someone please, please grab my boot, my hiking boots out of the bed of the side by side, because I do not feel like packing out 50 pounds of meat, a thousand feet and a couple miles back in like rubber boots. Sorry. Yep. That was totally off topic. I, no, I have good. a tendency of doing that. <laughs> we, um, we run into the same issue specifically out West. It's, it's like, um, so closer to home, I live in, well, I lived in Washington County, Maryland, which is like just, just on the foothills of the Appalachians. And we hunt Garrett County, which is farthest West in Maryland. And it's, it's like extremely steep, rugged terrain, but here we can go back a couple miles easily there we might go back maybe a mile tops but the elevation gain is outstanding yeah so specifically like during rifle season it can be like in the teens out there pretty much but we have that super humid climate and it it just feels so much colder so because of that and because most of the time during rifle we kind of sit still and let people push things around towards us. Yep. That's kind of been our, our proven methods of success. And to do that, you have to stay warm. So I kind of fight this battle all the time. Like, do I wear insulated boots or not? Because yep. we're about to hike like 1500 feet in elevation and we're going to sweat our butts off. So it's easy to strip down clothes and just march on and then put clothes on when you get settled. But boots are always an issue. Yeah. So I really, I still haven't really found a solid solution because I'm not packing in a separate set of, set of boots. I've started, I've started putting in extra socks so that I could swap socks when I get up to the top, but that doesn't make a huge difference. So I've still end up getting cold. I don't have a pair of these, but I've seen people use them and I always thought that they were just odd. And I was like, you know, I'm never going to buy them, but I got out to this property where I bow hunt and my buddy lives on the property. And so I get out there and I realize after work last year, I switched all my clothes, but I still had my tennis shoes on and it was going <laughs> to get down into like the mid twenties, maybe lower thirties. And I was like, crap, dude, do you have any boots that'll fit me? He's like, dude, I don't, I'm sorry. He goes, but I do have these things. They're like, a oh, boot, the like an insulated booty, like yeah. it covers your whole foot. And I was like, dude, I'll take them. I'll do whatever. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to have to quit hunting out here because it was like, like the rut was coming up and I, I just wanted to be out there. So I brought those in with my pack and they don't pack down small at all. I mean, they're still like, it's almost like packing in a sleeping bag, right? Like a small backcountry bag. But once I got out there, I threw those things on and my feet stayed warm the entire time. So yeah, I think maybe I that's, think that's the ticket. Yeah. yeah. I've been I've been threatening to get a pair of those for a while now, actually. But dad keeps teasing me about it. But I think I'm gonna do it this season just to give it a try. Yeah. But 
we've been lucky. It's been pretty mild the last couple of years. I don't know if that's just a cycle or if that's global warming or what, but it's been honestly quite nice. Yeah. I'm kind of a fan. I think um, this last season, the coldest sit I had was, I don't know, 20 degrees or something, which is pretty, pretty mild. Yeah. The only downside is we get a lot more rain instead of snow. So that kind of sucks, but oh, it is yeah. what it is. <laughs> I love, I love the cold. I mean, I'd take cold over warm any day of the week. There's something about it. It's probably because I grew up in Wisconsin and I mean, oh yeah, growing up rifle hunting up there the the season is always exactly the same it's the week around thanksgiving and so mm-hmm. you could have any type of weather at that point but i remember i would go out in like we may have a foot of fresh snow on the ground and i'd walk out on a hill like a wooded hillside and i would just jump up in the air and drop as hard as i could <laughs> on the hillside in the snow and i'd make like this little recliner and i just lay there and so i'm i'm a huge fan of cold the snow uh, I was just talking with a guy at lunch yesterday about the heat in the early season here, um, early archery season. Last year, we had a couple of days where it was like 90 degrees out. And oh, yeah. I, w- I started bringing a lightweight jacket and I would hang it in the branch above my tree stand just to keep the sun off me. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, this is for the birds. I don't even want to be out here hunting in that kind of heat. So Yeah, I'm, I I prefer like that in between weather, but I really like hunting in September. Yeah. That's like my go-to. I prefer that over anything else, but the heat does, it's pretty miserable, especially yeah. like, again, my gear is pretty lightweight now, but I still, I still probably carry in like 20 ish to 25 pounds of gear okay. on my back. So in 85 degrees, that's still pretty bad <laughs> Yeah, and drink a whole lot more water in the early season and stuff. But uh, the deer movement just seems to be unhampered for the most of September. Yep. And then the law in October is kind of non-existent here too. So that's pretty, pretty awesome as well. Yeah. That's but, cool. But it's, it tends to cool down. I just, I hate bow hunting after the leaves drop, even though I do it every single year, it's just, it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder to get closer. Yeah. How, how late are your bucks holding velvet there? Are you seeing bucks in velvet at all in September? Um, sometimes. Our season opens the first Friday of September. And by then, it's pretty much 50-50. Okay. So it, it depends on, on the specific areas and stuff. But I see a good bit. Last year, I was hoping to get a shot at a buck that was super regular, but... I didn't realize he was also bedding right by where I had a camera set up. <laughs> so the very first day I could, I went in after him and I'm, I'm pretty positive. I bumped him because I didn't see him after that. He wasn't huge or anything. He was just like a regular mainframe eight, but he was in full velvet come season. So I was hoping to get a good shot at him in velvet, but yeah, uh, the big man upstairs had different plans, I guess <laughs> it was a rough season last year. So yeah, specifically with the bow, I had all kinds of fun. All right, guys, if you enjoy this show and you want to know how to make your own, I'm going to tell you about something called Anchor. It's an app that I've been using ever since I started, and it's completely free. Like I said, I've used it from the get-go, and I haven't had to pay a single penny to distribute my podcasts through this app. They've got creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcasts right from your phone, tablet, computer, so you don't have to get a bunch of fancy equipment in order to get started. 
Now you can also add songs directly from Spotify into your episodes. So, I mean, you can create whatever you want, something that nobody's ever heard before, and it's so easy. Just click and drag. Anchor is also going to help you distribute your podcast, and so you don't have to upload it to all of these different platforms. Anchor can be that central hub that your podcast goes out to all of the other platforms through, and you can make money without any minimum listenership. So, I mean, you heard that right. You can actually start making money right away, no matter how many listeners you have. So what I'm getting at is it's basically everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So go and download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Yeah, I uh, we, we don't typically see deer in velvet during season. Last year was an exception. Um, I had one of our like main bucks that we've had on trail camera. He showed up again um, during bow season. It was still nighttime. It was like at 2 a.m. He was showing up every morning at 2 a.m. But I got to watch a couple videos on trail camera of him, like the velvet hanging down on his antlers. And it was during deer season, which I've never seen. I've never actually like witnessed in person a deer in velvet during deer season. And so that was kind of a treat. The only time I've hunted a velvet animal was actually in Alaska, a blacktail deer hunt, and they were still oh. all in velvet. And so that was pretty cool. Yeah, I was listening to your podcast with uh, Weston, and you're going to Alaska again this year? Yes. Yes, I am. How many, how many times have you been up there? Just once. Um, my wife and I went up for our five-year anniversary, and that was like the trip we decided decided to do. Um, and the main reason we chose to do Kodiak was because we had friends that uh, were at the um, National Guard base there on Kodiak Island. And they were like, hey, you can come stay with us. We'll show you around. You can hike the mountains. We'll take you out fishing. We've got all this gear. And I was like, is there anything I can hunt like at that point? And they're like, yeah, you actually can. And so we went up and did that. And that's awesome. Um, I shared that information with a guy who we actually rent from the house that we're in. Um, we rent from him. We're on his property. And he was like, Hey, how would you feel about taking me and my son up this year? Like you, you pay for the plane ticket and then we'll do a bunch of different stuff. We'll go salmon fishing and bear viewing and kayaking. And I was like, sure. Yeah. Done <laughs> deal. <laughs> hey babe, sorry. This is a guy's trip. But, uh, <laughs> um, I actually talked with him yesterday about the trip and I'm kind of thinking about bringing my bow up. And I might get a black tail tag because I, I'm torn. It was really fun to hunt them because the scenery, I mean, you could see the ocean. We were in grizzly country. It was awesome. But I felt like they were some of the dumber animals that I've ever hunted. Really? Like they just didn't care about us. I don't know what it was. If they, they realized they were way faster <laughs> or if they see people all the time or yeah, they just don't associate people with danger up there. But there were a few times where we were at like, maybe 40 yards and these deer were just standing there looking at us and we're hiking and they just continued to watch us didn't That's spook crazy. didn't run so i don't know when deer are either accustomed to people or just that dumb i'm kind of like i feel bad shooting this animal but uh with a bow i might not yeah i've actually been to alaska twice as well and oh, um, nice. i've never hunted up there though it's it's on the bucket list but since my uncle lived in the Yukon, he lived pretty close to the border. So we, we ventured into 
basically Southeast Alaska a couple times too, but That's cool. uh, the, the fishing up there is outstanding. Yeah. Um, we, we fly fish for grayling and I caught some Northern pike on the fly as well. So nice. it's a good time. And we saw a boatload of bears. He had my uncle, he, he had a trapping lease. It was 20 by 60 miles. He leased it from the government and he lived up there as kind of his retirement. He worked for the highway system up there, which I guess there's a lot of maintenance if you don't up there for highways, but oh, yeah. um, so that was kind of his retirement. He was a fur trapper for his retirement and he lived in a little shack, no power, no running water. And he had a, just the dog and him just hung out and him and him and the dog would have run-ins with grizzlies all the time. He had them on his front porch all, all the time. And that he's sounds just like, like heaven yeah. on earth. It, it, his setup was pretty incredible, to be honest. He had a, he had like a stream that ran in and he piped in water from the stream in an outhouse. He had a fur shed and then his little shack, which was literally, I would say moderately 20 by 20. And he had a little solar panel for a light bulb, but up there, it would work in the summertime because there was a bunch of sunlight, but in the summertime, you don't need it because it gets dark for a couple hours. Yeah. And then in the wintertime, when you needed it, yeah, there wasn't enough sunlight to charge anything. So he would, he would be just firelight, wood stove, light candles, that oh, kind of man. stuff, lamps. Yeah. It was pretty cool. That is he was a cool so dude. awesome. Yeah. I cool told dude. my wife, I'm like, if you ever left me or if anything ever happened to you and the kids, like nobody would ever see me again. I would live that guy's life i mean i would be in a <laughs> in a shack with no running water no power nothing running trap lines up in hopefully the alaskan yukon and it's like yeah nobody would ever see or hear from me ever again that's funny my wife jokes all the time about my next wife and i'm like oh no there's not gonna be a next wife <laughs> yeah. i'm like you're you're it like and she's like come on i'm like no seriously it's like something like we get divorced or if something happens like god forbid I'm just going to, I'm just going to go AWOL. It's not, yep. it's not going to happen again. And she's like, is it really that bad being married to you? And I'm like, no, 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 of course not. It's just like, just, I don't know. I want more, more adventure. Yeah. And I get a lot of adventure now, but I don't know. That whole into the wild thing is, is kind of like it draws. Yeah. Do you and watch, I don't know. Do you watch alone? Oh, Yes we're obsessed we both love it <laughs> have you seen the latest season in the arctic yeah so okay. um oh are you talking about are you talking about the current season or the million dollar season uh the million dollar season so yeah, i just wrapped that up on netflix oh okay so yeah it is it, i could not imagine like again because i mean you, you're cool with the cold but i'm not <laughs> so yeah. when i watch that i'm like Oh, I give them so much credit, but the rock house was pretty brilliant for yep. managing the cold. I was, as soon as he started laying that out, I'm like, yeah, that's brilliant. Sorry guys. Spoiler, spoiler alert. If you haven't seen it. Yet. Oh man. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, well, I don't feel as bad because you should have been watching it before listening to this podcast, <laughs> but that's an older season too. So that's, oh, yeah. that's like three seasons ago. You guys should be up to date. <laughs> but when he took that moose down, the moose, the muskox. Well, have you seen the one where he shoots the moose? Oh, you're talking about uh, that was Jordan's season where he took a moose down and then yeah, the Wolverine was trying to steal his meat and stuff. 
And so he killed right, the wolf. So that's a different season. There's okay. another season on Netflix now, and that's um, they had to go a hundred days, and so it's above the Arctic a more Circle. Recent season than that one. Yes, I don't think I'm caught up then. That's and exciting. if you're not caught up, the History Channel has an app you can download and watch all of them. There's oh, every sweet. season on there. Yeah, oh, so check man. it out. But on oh, Netflix I know what now, I'm watching now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. On Netflix now, there's a season where they had to last a hundred days, and then beyond that, whoever lasted the longest would win a million dollars instead of the regular five hundred thousand. Okay. So that season, there's a dude in there that just he just slays it, and he's like. I, I swear that guy could last like probably another 50 days and be fine. Jeez. Because he's just that he's that hardcore. And I'm just like looking at it and I'm like, like the whole premise of the idea of the challenge and the competition sounds awesome. But I look at it and I'm like, I don't know, man. <laughs> There's a lot of guys do that. who think they're bad enough to go out there and do it and they don't make it. And I'm like, man, I don't have the training that most of these guys have. Like I've got hunting and fishing experience but as far as like primitive trapping i have zero experience with it um as far as like shelter building i've made basic shelters but nothing right. nothing that i could survive an arctic winter in that's for sure um but yeah just the intrigue of it i'm like i would like to just try it for a week you know maybe i just need yeah. to start with that go out here for a week don't bring food see if i can actually like sustain myself it's tempting. It's tempting. I just went um, this spring turkey hunting and I didn't take very much food. I was kind of expecting to be self-reliant and just hunting and fishing and catching because that's what we pretty much do anyways. But uh, it kind of went that way, but not quite. And it kind of puts things in perspective. It's like you realize exactly how much you need to truly sustain yourself. And it's it's a staggering amount, really. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, there's something about just being able to walk to the fridge or freezer, microwave a meal, not have to start a fire, not have to catch it, skin it, not have to I mean, boil water, not have to boil I mean, there's water. There's a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's always interesting to me also watching the social side of it because I'm not, I don't feel like I need human interaction like constantly, but then you see some guys that get up there and they're like, yeah, I can't do it without people. And, right. I mean, I might fall into that boat as well. I might get up there and be like, no, I have to have human interaction or I'll go crazy or I'll start feeling guilty about, you know, being away from family or whatever. So oh, yeah. I've just decided see... as long as I have a family, I will not be a contestant on that show. <laughs> well, in this season, there's a traditional guy that um, is pretty well known in the traditional archery space. His name's Clay Hayes. And he's he's a contestant this year, and there's a lot of speculation that he'll do really well because he's a he's a pretty well-rounded outdoorsman. Yeah. But if you go on his YouTube channel, you'll see he's a very um, devout family man. So okay. that's been like every every comment I see is like, uh, I think Clay's going to do really well because he builds self bows. He's like one of the hardcore traditionalists. Yep. And it's like. Uh, he built he built a softbow specifically for this season and in the first episode he killed a grouse and found a bunch of mushrooms it's like yeah he's gonna do pretty good and then it's like but he really loves those boys and he loves his wife super like it's it's pretty intense and i can yeah. see it like myself personally 
I think I could do for sure. The first week would probably be pretty easy. It would be like yeah. vacation. Yeah. And then the next two weeks would be a little bit more difficult, but still, I think pretty easy, especially since it seems like every season, the weather is pretty moderate for the first couple of weeks. But then beyond 30 days, I think it would get pretty, pretty darn hard. Oh, yeah. Well, I, th- I think about it and I'm like, man, these people need to last out there. Basically, the entire early bow season. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's a long. I mean, if I'm gone, you know, the first week of bow season, it's quite a bit of time away from my family. But to do like three months of that, four months of that, yeah, I don't think I don't think I could make it. Even yeah, that, I mean, aside that, from the physical stuff, just the social, emotional, like having two little kids. No way. If I'm gone on a trip for three or four days, I come back and it seems like they've grown so much. And I can't oh, yeah. imagine doing it for four months. Yeah, it would be hard. It would be hard. But at the same time, I think most of those guys are considering the financial rewards at the end, the potential, yeah. like even, even a regular season of, I think most of the seasons have a reward of $500,000 and that's, that's like life-changing money for most people. So, oh, yeah. I mean, oh, most that would people, a couple, couple weeks away to spend the rest of my life with my wife and kids without having to go to work every day, perhaps it could be, I mean, it depends on your lifestyle, I guess, but. Yeah, I mean, if we if we got five hundred thousand dollars, we could pay everything off and be debt free and just hang out with each other for the rest of our lives. So, oh yeah, it it depends. I mean, might be worth it for some folks, but I think it it would be definitely hard. Yeah, five hundred grand, man. I would do. My problem is, I'm like, okay, with five hundred grand, I could basically pay my bills for twenty years straight. Like, we don't have a ton of bills. <laughs> Uh, we don't have a ton of debt. We're almost debt free. And so I'm like, yeah, that could pay my bills for 20 years. Or I could buy like a hundred acres of really right. awesome hunting land. Right. That's definitely the issue. It's like pay everything off or have a piece of property. I don't have to deal with other people. <laughs> yeah. For real. And then I'm like, oh shoot. But then then I still need trail cameras to cover that whole property. And <laughs> I need no trespassing signs and what am, am I going to keep shooting the same rifle or same bow? Yeah. My, my mind goes crazy. I'm a spender for sure. It's not good. Um, but I've got it. I've got it under control now. Yeah. You got to take it easy every now and then, but man, it's the little things like use the cell camera once and you'll never use a regular cell a regular trail camera again. Oh yeah. It's like that much more convenient. And it's like, well, what used to be like 30 to $40 is now, 99 to 120 dollars and then plus the cable to lock it up (laughs) right right well yeah i mean it just it adds up but i'm i'm pretty simple with everything else i shoot the well i say that i've got four bows hanging above me and there's quite a bit more around this house everywhere so i shouldn't say that i i even still they're pretty cheap i think the most expensive bow i have is like 400 something bucks so it's pretty pretty affordable collecting but still it adds up after a while and anymore you need like a second mortgage to find ammunition so it's just getting a little bit more ridiculous every year it seems but gotta keep doing it yeah i used to go out and shoot my rifle i mean i love shooting my rifle and i like trying to push it out to farther and farther distances and i haven't been able to get out and shoot because i am 
I'm afraid I'm not going to have ammo for the season. You know, I've been looking on all the websites, everything. You can't even like back order it anymore. And yeah, I know. I'm hoping it comes back like midsummer so that I can actually get out and shoot. Um, I'm letting my buddy's son use my rifle for the Alaska trip. And so I want to get him out there and comfortable shooting out to like two, 300 yards. Maybe I don't think we'll have to worry about a shot that far, but just in case. Yeah. Just in um, case. And so, yeah, the ammo's scary. I don't think yeah. there's any serious reason for it other than people are hoarding it. Definitely. I think so. And it's, it's more frustrating for a picky dude like me. I'm pretty specific about what I like to shoot. Yeah. Even like weird stuff. Like I, I couldn't find, I'm really like, so after, after whitetails, I chase a lot of squirrels in the late season. Yeah. So I found, um, it's a CCI quiet 22 round and it's very much like a suppressor almost. So I found that I can shoot at multiple squirrels sometimes with that round. So that's what I prefer now. And this last year I, so I got to take it easy because I can't find any and I have like, I don't know, 20 or 30 rounds left. So yeah. man, that's, that's terrible. Like it's just a 22 round. Come on now. Yep. I'm, I'm thankful that I had uh Turkey loads left. I had three rounds left from last year for my 20 gauge. And uh, I went to buy more at the store this year. Couldn't find any, like for the really? whole month leading up to season, I couldn't find Turkey ammo. And so luckily I had the three rounds and I was able to make it work in one. Um, so maybe I've got two, <laughs> two years left of Turkey ammo still. Oh goodness. I go into every Turkey season so confident and it just never seems to work out. I don't know what it is about turkeys here, but they are just way smarter than I am apparently. See, and we're not like, we've been, we've been hunting them for a long time and I've only killed one and dad's killed maybe three. So nice. I, they just kick our butt. I don't know what it is. See, I don't, I've, I've killed one turkey that was kind of a traditional turkey hunt where like it came in everything else I've had to go to and. Oh, really? Yeah. So I've killed, let me think. I've got four turkeys so far. One of them, I was in a blind in Colorado and it still didn't work out. Like I didn't call it in. My decoys didn't bring it in. A different turkey had actually come in. And then this one and a hen, and I don't know how many others came in from behind me. And I didn't see them until like, I was looking out of the window and I heard a, a cluck and I looked down and this hen's just staring me straight in the eyes <laughs> and I just froze and waited. And it was like two minutes where she was just staring at me. And then she went back to feeding and this Tom just comes flying in. Uh, I'm not flying, but running in super fast. And it took a while, but it ended up giving me a shot. That's the only time I've killed a turkey without like moving towards the animal. So, yeah, we've never, we've never had one come in like a traditional in the decoys type deal. It's, we've always had to basically maneuver into their line of path, basically. Yeah. Specifically here in home turf, they, um, they're pretty pressured. Our county is kind of the first stop from all the major metropolitan areas. So we we get guys in in our neck of the woods from D.C. or Baltimore on the regular. So they're pretty call shy. And most of the time, I don't even call to them. If I I just get up into the mountains and start hearing them gobble, 
I'll try and get in front of them. And it, it's worked for me once. Actually, I've had a lot of, a lot of really good run-ins with birds, but it's only been the past couple of years that I've, I've actually been hunting them with a shotgun. Most of the time I'm trying to kill them with a bow. So I realized that I'm not that great of a turkey hunter. So I should maybe put a couple under my belt with a shotgun. So I started hunting with a shotgun and, um, last year COVID messed up my season pretty bad. And this year I gave it my best, but I didn't get to pull the trigger on anything. So I, I had a lot of good run-ins, but they're just, they're so darn smart. It's weird. A bird with such a small brain can outsmart full grown humans constantly, For real. but they do. Yep. I see them. I'll, I'll see turkeys every day out in the fields. And then the day that turkey season opens, they just like disappear. And I oh, may yeah. catch them like on the neighbor's property or 400 <laughs> yards away from me in the field. But like it was, I think it was the week before turkey season. I went out to the property I hunt and I was like, Hey, I'm going to go check trail cameras, try to figure out which, like where they're patterning. Um, if they're crossing in front of this camera, that's where I'm going to set up opening morning. And so I get out there and I'm looking at camera pictures and they were coming in, in the afternoon, which in Missouri, you can't hunt the afternoon for turkeys. Right. Um, and so I was like, well, shoot, I'm not going to hunt this spot. And I start walking through the field and I'm in cover, like maybe double my ankle height uh, so like i'm totally exposed and i look out and there's half a dozen to a dozen turkeys in the field with me and i just crouched down i'm not even in camo i crouched down and i opened my phone and i'm doing a tiktok live like <laughs> it's facing me and i'm just waiting and these turkeys came into like 60 yards without me being in camo in the middle of a field and they finally like saw me didn't even bolt they just kind of like turned around and fed the other way and I'm all like, the time. <laughs> why can't, why can't this happen like a week from now? Why can't it right. happen two weeks from now? But it's, it's constant. Every hunter sees it. It's like, if you're squirrel hunting, you see a ton of deer. When you're deer hunting, you see a ton of squirrel. When you're turkey hunting, they're not there. When you're not, they are. I mean, it's just part of it. Yeah. I think that's probably why we haven't killed a bear yet because it overlaps with archery whitetail season. Okay. And it's inevitable. Our bear season is normally, um, it's like the last week in October, most of the time, somewhere around there. So it's like, it's like gearing up to primetime whitetails. We're not going to walk into the woods with a rifle and we can't use it against whitetails. It doesn't yeah. make sense. So we always carry bows. And I think um, the last time dad and I hunted bears, he probably would have killed a bear if he had a rifle because he saw one and it, it was moving pretty good, but I think he probably would have been able to kill it, but he had a bow and he killed a white tail that trip anyway. So it worked out. Okay. But still not a bear. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's kind of, we see it. I see a ton of them. I've even had some bluff charge me when we don't have a tag or when they're out of season, but anytime season comes in, it's kind of like pulling teeth. Yeah. To find them. Is so you said that is a, a lottery system for bears, right? Here. Is it and pretty high success rate? Like if you put in, is it like every other year, every three, every five? Um, so it's a lottery system with preference points. So it seems to be every five years, roughly. Okay. But there are some guys that have been putting in since the start and still haven't been drawn because it's a true lottery system. It's not yeah. like some of the Western states where points are drawn first. 
it just they give you like if you have five preference points and you want to put in this year you get five entries nice so it just gives you a higher chance but if you don't get drawn and you get another point you can win next year so i think it's a pretty fair system some guys would probably disagree but i prefer that to like there's some units out out west for like sheep or something that there's a max point system of 20 years or something and those guys are still probably not getting drawn i think i heard that in a podcast or something and that just sounds miserable yeah i think it's there's no point in putting in now because those guys there's a pool of like a couple hundred of them and they're all maxed out and yeah they said the point creep i mean it's just you'll never catch those people and i started putting in for for colorado points i mean i'm building let me think i'm building elk points i use my mule deer points like every two years I'll cash them in and just get a mule deer tag. Um, but I'm building bear points, moose points, sheep points. I quit putting in for mountain goat because as a non-resident for mountain goat, sheep, and moose, it's $300 just to get your point each year for Ooh. those three. And I'm like, man, I can't keep justifying this. And I now think that I would lower the pool, but it doesn't you, sound like it is. <laughs> you would think so. I just don't know like what percentage they actually give to non-residents. You know what I mean? Right. Like if it's, if it's still an equal chance uh, or like if I'm trying to think of how to say it, if I have less of a chance to draw one because I'm a non-resident, like I'll never get one at this right. point. But if they set aside like 10% of the tags, then that'll knock out a ton of people from buying one each year. And maybe I'll actually draw. But right. I was telling my buddy Sean out there, I was like, man, by the time I can say that I'll probably draw one, I'm going to have like 20 preference points. That's $2,000 for just points, just a moose, not counting, you know, it would be $6,000 in uh, to have 20 points for a moose, a sheep and a goat. And I'm like, for that price, I could legitimately go up to Alaska and hunt a moose. Yeah, you definitely could. Have you heard, um, there's a guy named Mike Mitten. He's a traditional bow hunter so. too. Um, actually, he did a really cool podcast with the Push Guys. And he does DIY uh, moose and caribou hunts in Alaska. Oh, cool. So they basically just drop him in and he handles everything from there. And he was he was giving out numbers. It's pretty affordable. So yeah. it's doable. And it, it kind of like opened at least my eyes to a lot but you you never really know how long that'll go before it ends yeah like because they they could change legislation and make those two species required to be guided like some of the other species in alaska or it could be like um what was it manitoba there's a caribou population um in canada and they just completely shut it down so it's like man you just never know how much longer these opportunities are going to be available. Yeah, you you kind of think that it's going to be forever, but it might not be. And that's my, what's kind of stressful. My goal because of that fear is my goal is within five years to get up to Alaska and do a Yukon moose hunt with a bow. Like that is my number one hunt. If I could pick anything, I want to do that so bad. Um, I mean, I'll still, because of, because I could, potentially draw a moose tag in Colorado. I'll probably continue to put in for that, but I'm not putting in mountain goat points anymore. 
Um, I'll continue probably to do bighorn. Um, but I went on a mountain goat hunt last year with a good friend of mine and he ended up shooting one. And so I was like, man, I've experienced the hunt for a mountain goat. Like, yeah. I mean, I've, I've climbed the mountains. I've been 13,000 feet up, like trying to find these goats. And then after he shot it, we, we actually caught some trout in a stream up there and we had high country surf and turf and, nice. uh, we, he cut up the back straps of this goat and I took one bite and I was like, Nope, I will never, <laughs> ever hunt a mountain goat just because like, I, I want to enjoy eating whatever I kill, you know? Yeah. And I did not like that meat at all. And so I was like, I just, I've got my mountain goat hunting, although I didn't pull the trigger. I was part of everything else. And that's enough for me. Sometimes the experience is, is the hunt. Yeah. Like it absolutely. sounds cliche, but sometimes it does not need to end in death to be successful. Yep. And that's kind of like last year when I went chasing sick of the year, I really wanted the meat. That was kind of the priority. Yep. But at the same time, like, like, coming around sand dunes and not knowing if you're going to find sick of deer or wild horses and hearing the Atlantic ocean crashing in the background and seeing crabs and stuff when you're carrying a bow, it just, the whole thing was so cool. It, my priority of getting meat to bring home dropped down considerably, even yeah. though it's like, like I said earlier, it's truly delicious. It, the experience of trying to get one was so cool that it, it just was it was something else driving around on the beach in the truck was something I'm not used to either. So that was pretty cool. Cause most of the Island is, um, ORV accessible. So that's how I hunted most. It was just driving up and down the beach, looking for what looks like good terrain. Cause I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I didn't know much about them, but just finding some of my first trip was like, check off success. It's, it's good. I found what I came here for without knowing a whole lot about them and almost got a shot at one like that how cool is that like you could literally go in the day and catch crabs in the afternoon and hopefully have a successful thing in the morning and have a surf and turf a true surf and turf in the afternoon that would just be epic and that's you can't get that anywhere else i mean that's one of a kind and i think there's a lot of hunts out there like that that you could just be there and absorb everything and just find adventure and just be like totally blown away. Yeah. And that's kind of what I chase all the time. It's just adventure. And I keep my experience so far has been pretty localized, but to get such a varying degree of differences between everything that's locally available, I haven't felt the need yet, but it's coming. I, I need to go out West and venture a little bit more. I got a taste of what's out there when we've been to Alaska and my other great uncle lived in Saskatchewan. He had pronghorn and uh, um, elk and moose in his neck of the woods too. And it's like, eventually, eventually I have to get out there and chase after some of them because it's a whole different ball game. There's something about it. I mean, like Western big game hunting. I've always been a white tail hunter. I always will be. I've always loved waterfowl hunting, but there's something about Western big game hunting. And I think it's pro a lot of it was like the mystery of it growing up. Like I didn't, in my mind, it wasn't accessible. I'd never be able to do it. It would cost me $10,000. You know, that was just my thought process going, growing up. 
And then once I moved out there, I was like, man, even as a non-resident, you can come out here and hunt for nine days with a rifle and it'll be a thousand bucks. I mean, you could legitimately do it for a thousand dollars. And that's just, that's a matter of not eating out a couple times a week, you know, or whatever. And so now I'm hooked and I'd say the best meat I've ever had was fresh moose because my buddy killed a moose and we took it back to, to camp and we cooked up some of the back straps. We cooked up the moose tongue and the moose heart. And it was amazing. And that had me hooked. I was like, dude, I will, I will put in points as long as I live. If it means I can hunt one of these. Cause it's like, once you shoot a moose, you've got a couple of years worth of meat just from that mm-hmm. one animal. And it's good meat. And my uncle basically lived off moose meat. Nice. So, so I'm, I'm pretty familiar. It's pretty awesome. He, he would always complain. Um, the rest, he would basically eat, like you said, the, the tenderloins and the hard tongue, everything tender right off the bat, but everything else he would have to age for a while. He said it would pretty, it'd be pretty tough right off the bat, but if, if you age it for just a little bit, it'll it'll tenderize really quick and be nice. pretty much superior to beef yeah so he, he lived off of that for for a long time i don't blame him <laughs> no i mean we tip we we do like the traditional steaks and stuff um when we shoot deer but we like mm-hmm. to do a lot of roasts and oh yeah one of my favorite meals is shredded venison breakfast quesadillas and so like we'll do eggs we'll do the shredded venison from the day before in the crock pot we'll do corn and cheese and beans and i mean that is killer and so i have no problem even if it is a little bit tough like anything sits in a crock pot long enough it's edible right yep yep we're the same way we use we use a lot and we use it a lot of different ways too this last year um there's a place up here i because i live in pennsylvania and because we live in a CWD zone, we have to follow certain regulations. And most of the time, if I kill a deer in Maryland, I have to break it down before bringing it back into Pennsylvania. So it kind of gives me a little bit of flexibility. I still have, I do, I do a lot of processing myself, yep. but occasionally if I'm going to do something unique, I'll take it somewhere. And there's a spot up by my buddy's house, probably like 25 minutes away. They chip deer meat, like chip beef. Yeah. So it's like a cured process. And um, I did a whole hindquarter that way. And then I took another hindquarter myself and processed it down and made like a breakfast sausage. And then we do a lot of bologna. And then we would grind a whole bunch. And we we literally live off of deer meat. Um, we, we could afford to buy beef, but to buy beef of the same quality as fresh venison would be quite costly. And we we couldn't afford to do that. Like no. You would need organic grass-fed beef to be comparable, and that stuff is super expensive. Yep. We can buy like the super cheap 80-20 mixes in the stores, no problem, but that's not the same thing. No. <laughs> it's totally different. So we live off deer meat. I was lucky enough to take two does with a rifle this year in Pennsylvania, but my bow season was extremely frustrating in Maryland. Oh, no. But I've been doing a lot of... um been doing a lot of weird stuff the past couple of seasons where um, Maryland has a lot of urban opportunities and a lot of the urban opportunities are public and they're bow only. So even during rifle season, I went down there a couple of times this year, just because 
it seems like when you limit a property to archery only, there seems to be a higher caliber of deer present most yeah. of the time. I actually had a camera out all year. It was a cell camera, so I didn't have to go in and, and lay send down to check it. And um, there's just so many bucks down there. It's ridiculous. It's it's maybe 20 minutes from the White House, and it's just it's unreal. It's it's really weird because there's a marked train system where people are literally on the train going to DC and I'm sitting in a saddle like a hundred yards off of the tracks. <laughs> and and some some of the other spots are backed up to like neighborhoods and you can hear in the early season I had a meeting and I hunted in the afternoon down that way and I could hear an ice cream truck going back and forth and I'm like melting in the stand it was september and it was 80 degrees and i'm like i just climb down and get an ice cream i just i really want some ice cream now (laughs) it's like no but there's deer there's got to be deer and i saw several deer that night but nothing close enough to shoot i'm like should have got down and got ice cream instead (laughs) but it's just it's weird that you can hunt in these urban areas and then where we hunt out west is like 50 there's one state forest that's 50,000 acres. The other state forest is 40,000 acres and you won't see a soul. And in these other areas, you can see people through the brush walking on hiking trails and stuff or walking dogs. And the one spot, I don't know why this guy bought a lot in the woods, but he blows leaves all fall long. It tries to be bananas. And but there, there's monster bucks in that neck of the woods, and they don't care if he blows leaves every day. But it oh. sure does drive me nuts. <laughs> now you just need to bring a leaf blower up in the sand and do it so that the deer just think, oh, this is not a threat. Maybe they'll come in. <laughs> it's funny because, like, I, I always threaten to, like, well, I wouldn't do this in public because I don't want people to know where I'm at. But I always want to rake paths and stuff. And then I'm like, well, I don't know if the deer would tolerate it, but. If they tolerate that all season long, they'll, they'll tolerate it. Oh yeah, man. It's funny that you're talking about this because I I've listened to the podcast where the urban bow hunters are just outside of DC or just out like in the suburbs of Atlanta, same type of deal. I think one of the stories I heard was they got up in their tree in the dark and they looked down and there were two dudes just passed out like 10 <laughs> yards from them in the woods. They must have had a party the night before and they just woke up and they're just like stumbling around. And the guy was like, Hey, hey guys, get out of here. And they both like freaked out because <laughs> they heard this guy talking to them out in the woods. And uh yeah, that'd be a trip like to hunt that close to I've hunted that close to civilization with like while waterfowl hunting. We had a spot basically in the middle of the city, but it was technically we could hunt like goose hunt it. And we would hunt it and almost every time uh, conservation would come out and talk to us because they'd get gunshot complaints in the city and they'd be like, we know it's you guys, but we always have to respond to a call. And so, yeah, Maryland's loaded with that, with the waterfowl guys. I haven't, I haven't dived too deeply into waterfowl, like not traditional waterfowl with decoys and spreads and stuff like that. I've, I've done a lot of, past shooting waterfowl in the fields and stuff around the house um but i see videos all the time specifically i don't know why but maryland you can draw blind sights basically it's like a lottery system yeah for blind sights and you would think that 
the Department of Natural Resources would check these sites for potential issues, but it doesn't seem like they do. Because you have a state-assigned blind site that these guys are hunting, and you have landowners just outside the safety zone that have issues with it. It's like, well, like it seems like this could be avoided for everybody involved, but yeah. for some reason it's not, and I don't <laughs> understand why. But it's it's very interesting. I haven't, like I said, I haven't. I have a dog that I've trained to hunt with, but we mostly do field work. He does. We hunt a lot of doves in September. Nice. And like I said, some past shooting for waterfowl. And this season, we're going to dive heavy into pheasants, I think. But we'll see how it goes. He's kind of a knucklehead sometimes. So depends. (laughs) Pheasants are pretty dependent on his abilities, I think. Whereas doves are pretty dependent on mine. Man, come on out. Come on out here. And I've got a spot for dove hunting where it i mean you cannot reload your gun fast enough you'll miss opportunities at birds but it's only the opening morning really opening morning it's on fire but there's hundreds of guys out on this one chunk of public yeah and we get tucked back away from them and so we're not i mean like there might be stray bbs like actually falling from the sky but we're not Mm -hmm. gonna get peppered like with an actual blast um but yeah, so many birds. We limit out every every year opening morning, no matter how many guys we bring out. Like everybody gets their 15 or 16 birds that you can get. Um, and then after that, it just shuts off. Really? But it's a good time. So you've got an open invite. If you want to come out, bring your dog and shoot some doves with us. Do you guys hunt with dogs or not? I, don't, I, I used to. Um, I had... Before we moved out to Colorado, I had a black lab and then I bred that and got a chocolate lab out of it. And so they were my dogs. I'd take them waterfowl, dove, rabbit, you name it. Um, But then we moved out to Colorado and it was so expensive to live out there. We went from having 230 acres that we rented with a house um, that the dogs could run on. And when we moved out to Colorado, it was $1,600 a month for a 900 square foot apartment and the dogs had no place to run. And I was just like, I can't, I can't ethically, like I feel bad doing this to the dogs. And then on top of that, the day we moved, my wife found out she was pregnant with our second. And so then she's pregnant having to deal with a one and a half year old son pregnant with our daughter and dealing with two dogs all in a 900 square foot apartment. And it was like, we've got to, find a new home so i found a found a guy who hunted i was like it's got to go to they both have to go to someone who hunted i want to keep them together and so we found a guy south of us who took him and uh yeah so that's the last time i've had a dog for hunting but i keep telling my wife once we're fully debt free um i'm gonna save up some money and have a dog get it trained like professionally trained and then it'll just go everywhere with me so yeah, that's how this one is. I this is my first ever hunting dog. We've always had dogs growing up, but this is the first one um, that I've had that I've trained specifically to hunt with. Nice. And it's been a learning curve. I I did I've done it all myself, and it's been uh it's been interesting. But he's a he's probably the best dog I'll ever have. Yeah. He um he just kind of naturally picks things up, and I think he's he's trained to do some other odd things. He can find um basically he can find marijuana 
And so I figure if he can, if he can use his nose in that aspect, he can probably, he can probably find pheasants. Yeah. But the trick is um, he's never actually touched a pheasant yet. So, okay. I had a spot. We, a buddy and I, we hunted uh, pheasants with our bows and um, I was successful at actually taking a couple out of the air with my bow, which was super Dang, cool. That's awesome. And we hunted, we hunted with a guy. Um, I wanted to go the first time for sure without my dog, just to see how things went down. And the second time I went without him because again, I just kind of wanted to get a feel for things, how, how the process worked. And after the second time I was talking to him about my dog and he's like, absolutely bring your dog. He's like, he will learn from my dogs and it'll, you'll be surprised how quick he picks it up. Yeah. But then that those guys shut down and I'm like, come on, we were right there. It was about to happen. And nah, it just didn't. But, um, it was, it was bizarre watching those dogs work and how methodic they were with using their nose and I'm like, well, my dog can find pretty much anything we knock out of the sky, but when it's on the ground alive, that's where it becomes an issue. And Maryland stocks pheasants for youth hunts. And after the youth hunters come through, you can go in and pick up leftovers. Oh, that's We've awesome. tried the last two seasons. But this is um, basically my entire hunting life. I've been using a single shot shotgun for everything. Yeah. So it's, it's difficult. It doesn't have any adjustable adjustability with chokes, just a full barrel. And this year I upgraded to a Stoger semi. So I'm looking forward to getting into a lot more fun yeah. because it, I can, I can shoot uh, something with adjustable adjustability and the, and the fact that I can add chokes a lot better than that single, but I don't know. I'm kind of a cheap steak, a uh, cheap steak. I couldn't justify something I didn't use very often, but I keep using it more and more and more. And I'm like, wow, between turkeys and doves and, possibly pheasants rabbits squirrels whatever i can i can get used out of it and it was oh it was yeah. a good deal anyways so yeah that's awesome my wife was only moderately mad for a little while <laughs> she's like uh, you just bought it you didn't say anything and i'm like well i got a bonus from work so and she's <laughs> then then i made the mistake of telling her how how much it was it was only like 600 bucks but then she was mad at me for a whole nother week after that <laughs> it's like 600 bucks I'm like yeah it was a good bonus she's like ah, some shotguns are four times that much it's not an expensive shotgun that's what i was trying to explain i'm like it's like it's a nurture driven it's a really good deal she's like yeah but (laughs) still 600 bucks yeah like i can't do the single shot anymore you just gotta (laughs) deal with it (laughs) oh yeah well dude i'm gonna we're almost at an hour and a half uh, I want to be respectful of your time, but I could absolutely, man, you're a fun guy to talk to I could talk to you for hours. We're going to have to hop on again this year. Maybe as it gets closer to season, we can talk about prep and I'll fill you in on how my saddle system is going. Yeah, absolutely. And all that. Um, but I definitely appreciate you being on the show and I've had a great time chatting, uh, before I let you go a couple things real quick. Uh, do you want to share where people can find your stuff? I know you referenced your YouTube video. Uh, you've mm-hmm. got TikTok and Instagram. If you want to share that stuff uh, with listeners, yeah. So um, the the channel I'm kind of building is called Instinctive Adventures, and it's Instinctive Adventures on everything: Instagram, mm-hmm. Facebook, YouTube, and I do tinker on TikTok. It's kind of a 
unique uh, platform, but it I'm there. It's it's a good time. <laughs> nice. Um, well, yeah, I'm I'm definitely gonna hop on your YouTube because I want to see your climbing system for the saddle setup. Um, yep, absolutely. That seems interesting. The, the video is called uh, "Climbing a Tree with Only Five Pounds of Gear." So you'll see. It's uh, it's probably one of my more popular uploads. I guess I nailed the title, but <laughs> um, it, it's a unique setup for sure. That's cool. Well, hey, thanks again. Actually, before I let you go, I've been on a roll. I've been remembering to do this segment. It's called Unloading the Chamber. So if there's anything that you want to share with the listeners, a piece of advice, a tip, a trick, um, whatever you want to leave the listeners with, you get the last word. Cool. So I think the biggest thing I've learned this last year is that you should not wait. And what I mean by that is if you want to go try something new for me the sick trip kind of unloaded this on me don't wait just go do it because you'd never know like we were talking about earlier the opportunity could vanish you i mean everybody gets older every year and something could happen so just go do it go adventure go have fun yeah that's awesome um and that that actually kind of ties in i I haven't shared this on a podcast yet, but I, I've had several people reach out about being on the show. And um, I had a call scheduled with a gentleman uh, for next Monday or no, next Tuesday it was. And I just got an email from his wife saying that they, that he had passed away. Um, oh, no. He's a guy I've never met him. He was a law enforcement officer in Northern California and um yeah they he passed away and so like you said you know don't wait you never know what tomorrow holds we're not promised another day and so get out and try that stuff and obviously my prayers and condolences go out to his family and uh the law enforcement agency that he was a part of but um sorry that took a <laughs> took a somber turn that's for sure uh but anyways thanks again man i do really appreciate it and we'll we'll stay connected and do another one of these soon Absolutely. And that is going to wrap up today's episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. Like I told you, um, it was a great chat and we could have continued talking for quite a bit after this. In fact, once I stopped recording, we, we chatted for another 15 to 20 minutes um, until finally I realized I should probably let my wife come back into our room and get some sleep because she was outside um, on her own TikTok. But I was actually doing TikTok live as I was recording this episode and a couple people commented things like, man, it sounds like it's just two hunting buddies sitting around a campfire, sharing stories and talking, which is exactly what I want out of these podcasts. I want it to be pretty raw, uncut, unedited um, so that you guys can just enjoy hearing from other experienced hunters, fishers, outdoorsmen, whatever that may look like. And so I hope you all really do enjoy these podcasts. And if you haven't already, please hop on and leave a review or a rating um, or both because I think that helps me distribute this. Like uh, the podcast platforms that actually get it out to people, the higher the reviews and the ratings, um, the higher up it goes on people's searches or recommended um, podcasts for them to listen to. So please hop on and do that. That would be a huge help to me. And until next time, Always choose adventure and God bless.